Well, good morning. Good to be with you guys. Um, let's pray and ask God to uh, help us wrap our minds around His Word this morning. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the chance to gather and to fix our eyes heavenward, to remember afresh the good news of the gospel. I pray that uh, as we sit under your word this morning, that you would prepare our hearts to receive it and that we might see the glorious riches of Jesus um, presented to us in this passage uh, from your word. So we pray, would you speak mightily to us uh, by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, if you're joining us for the first time this week, uh, been working our way through the book of James and now have arrived in chapter three. And uh, if uh, this is new to you, just a little bit of context around James, the author of this book. Uh, we know a few things about him. We know that uh, from the book of Acts that James was a leader in the early church. Uh, we know him to be the half-brother of Jesus, and we know that he would have endured suffering, persecution, and would have been pivotal in the formation of the early church. What's different about James and how he writes compared to the other um, New Testament authors is that he's less concerned about high-flying theology, and he's much more in your face, like how does our faith interact with our life? Um, he gets in your business, I guess you could say. And he's got a few themes that run throughout his book, and one of them that's introduced to us in chapter one and that even makes its way into this chapter uh, is the idea of wholeness. He uses the word perfect seven times throughout the book, and uh, what he means by perfect is maturity. So he's concerned with Christians growing to maturity. And the reason that he's concerned with this is because he knows and we know that we as people are fractured. We are broken. We're not what we ought to be because of sin in the world. And every area of our life has been fractured and stained and tainted by our sin, even the very words that fall off our tongues, which is what we're going to be talking about uh, this morning. So before we dive in... Um, I wanted to try to move us into uh, this text um, by drawing on something from, uh, from culture that I think, uh, you know, occasionally artists will capture uh, things that we see in the Word pretty well. And Victor Hugo is a famous writer um, back in the 1800s. And I think that he, in his most famous work, Les Miserables, captures the state of a fractured soul very, very well. Um, that book title... Les Miserables, uh, it, if you translate it to English, uh, it means um, the wretched ones or the outcasts or the miserable ones. See, Hugo, as an author, uh, he was a military man. He was a royalist turned Republican. Um, he is to France what Dickens was to England. And firsthand, he saw war and poverty, and he, he looked into the window of culture and knew that it was broken. And he writes about his book. He says, as long as ignorance and poverty exist on the earth, uh, books of this nature will not fail to be of use. And in his book, in Les Mis, he writes about a man named Jean Valjean, who by all instances would be someone who you could say was harassed and helpless. Um, we're introduced to Jean Valjean as this man who's uneducated, um, yet uh, somewhat noble. He's trying to help his widowed sister who has seven children just survive. And they're literally starving to death. And so there's this one scene where he plunges his arm through uh, a glass window to steal a loaf of bread. He gets cut up and bloodied and, and he gets caught. And the law was very harsh towards theft. Uh, he was put in prison. And 
because he continued to try to escape, he ended up being in prison for 19 years. And Hugo writes about Jean Valjean, what happens to him in prison, what happens to a human soul under the blows of tough circumstances. And he says that, he says of Jean Valjean, he says that his eyes were dry because he had a dead soul. And he was the kind of man that wouldn't turn around because he knows that misery hunts people like him. See, Hugo is trying to capture the fact that the world can be and often is very cruel and that the words that fall on some people can be those of rejection and hatred. And it's striking to see the way that words can actually kill the soul of a man and change a life. James actually agrees with Victor Hugo, but he gives us a much better exposition of the spiritual realities behind this powerful truth that we know to be true uh, in our world. And so what James is going to do in these 12 verses is he's actually just going to throw a few punches at us. And so we're going to see really three things uh, in these 12 verses. We're going to see a scary reality, a contaminated source, and a perfect power. So the first punch that James throws is a scary reality. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, The tongue is small, yet it is strong. It makes great boasts. James is very big on metaphors. He was highly influenced by the Proverbs. And right here, he's going to give us three pictures to kind of drill home this sort of scary reality. And he starts with the horse, right? So he, in verse 3, he said, he's kind of saying, okay, if we put bits into the mouth of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Horses weigh on average 1,000 pounds. They're incredibly powerful animals. We have car commercials, right, that talk about horsepower. Um, the bit that people would put inside of, a, of the mouth of a horse weighs one pound, and yet it gives the rider total control of the horse. James is trying to give us an image here to show kind of a contrast of power and restraint and control. And he's saying like a, like a bit to a horse is like the tongue to a person. But then he goes further. He says, consider the ships in verse four. Consider the ships of the sea. They're large, they're powerful. They're often driven along by great winds. You know, if you tried to stand next to a ship and push it and pull it according to your will, uh, it wouldn't move. And yet he says, but a small rudder can influence the whole direction of a ship. If you've ever sailed, either a big ship or a small one, um, the rudder that sits at the back of a ship, it, all it takes is just the lightest touch to send it into the direction that you want it to go. James says the tongue, the slightest action, the slightest words that fall off our tongue can alter the course of a whole person. It can change a whole direction in life. And then he gives one more image. He says in verse 5, consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Um, I did a little bit of research and I came to discover that in America, um, a very large percentage of forest fires are actually started by cigarette butts, people just flicking a tiny little cigarette and it ends up devouring land and lives and can be devastating. Fortunately, in England, it rains so much that's not quite a problem, but in the U.S., big problem. Um, James is saying this, the tongue, verse 6, the tongue is like a fire. It's able to set ablaze all of one's body, the whole course of your life. It's terribly destructive is the point he's trying to make. I have a good friend who is, um, he lives in Atlanta, Georgia. He is a firearms instructor for a police academy. 
And so his job literally is to teach and train police officers how to shoot their guns. And I spent some time with him back in December, and um, he was, I was just asking him, I was like, so what exactly do you do? How do you uh, instruct these police officers? And he walked me through the whole extensive list of things that they do, all the way from educating them on the different pieces of the gun and how it all fits together, and then the certain way that you want to grab it, and the certain way that you want to uh, transport it, and the certain way that you want to turn the safety on and off, and just this extensive instruction and care uh, and direction that's given to these police officers, well, why is that the case? Well, it's because they know the power and devastation that is in their hands. We know very well, we see it on the news, what happens when people wield power uh, without taking care um, and without being properly instructed. James is saying that your tongue is arguably more dangerous than an AK-47 in a child's hands. That's the scary reality that he's trying to, to show us right now. And to, when, when I was meditating on this, it just hit me, wow, I don't think about my tongue that way. I don't think about the words that I say that way. And James says, you must. As a believer, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is him kind of getting into our business. So the first point is, you know, the tongue is strong. That's one scary reality that he is painting right here. The other scary reality is that the tongue is not just strong, it is wild. Look at verse 7. He calls it untamable. He says, there isn't an animal on our earth that's not been tamed or being tamed. Now, I don't know how you feel ethically about SeaWorld. Um, Now's not the place to get into whether you think uh, killer whales should be in pools or not. But if you've ever seen a killer whale be uh, work with people, work with the trainers, you know, on cue, rise up and flip and splash and, and spin around and wave to the children, you can't help but marvel, oh my goodness, this is incredible that this wild, powerful animal has been, has been tamed, has been uh, brought under submission by human beings. Yet how ironic that no human being alive, according to James, is able to control this little tongue that's in our mouth. He says it's restless, it's full of poison. Sinclair Ferguson, the Scottish pastor and theologian, um, when he's teaching on this topic, he says that we all with our tongues, we fall to one extreme that prove that the tongue is untamable. Um, he says that either you will use your tongue too much or you will use it too little, thus proving that we lack the mastery to tame it. He says, um, you know, you can use it too much. Uh, and, and maybe this is you. Uh, you can find that you're unaware of how your words affect people. Um, you lack the ability to, to restrain your tongue, to, to speak at times. Um, we overuse our words. Or perhaps you're someone who doesn't use your tongue enough. You speak too little. For whatever reason, you're unable to, to utter the things that you should and need to and ought to say. The tongue is strong. The tongue is wild. And the third scary reality is that the tongue is sacred. Look at what James says in verse 9. He says, With our tongue we bless God and we curse people who are made in the likeness of God or in the image of God. The tongue was meant, was given to us by God to build up people, to give life, to praise God, to love our neighbor, to uplift our children and praise our spouses and communicate God's glory and goodness to the world, but it is cursed. 
and it's been stained by sin and corrupted by the fall. And in verse 10, James says, look, it was supposed to be a pure fountain, but now it's forced to emit both life-giving water as well as poisonous brothers. This ought not be so, but it is. That's the scary reality. So that's the first punch that James throws to us is one right to our mouth, so you could say. And in verse two, James says, you know, if we were able to control our tongue, really, if we were able to control our words, we would be perfect or we would be whole. We would be mature is what he's saying. And yet no one can. And so why is that? Why is that the case? Well, the reason comes in the second punch that James throws to us. And that is that the tongue is not isolated. It's actually connected to a source. And that source is a contaminated source. Look at verses 11 and 12. He's getting into this idea. Well, here, I'll I'll read it. He says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond produce fresh water. What is, what is he talking about? I think it's rather simple. He's just saying that either a spring at its core is salty or it's fresh. A fig tree's DNA means that it should produce figs, not olives. An olive tree's DNA means that it should produce olives, not figs. Well, what's the point? The point is that the tongue, our tongue is not an isolated member. It's actually connected to our heart. It's connected to who we are at our core as people. Our words don't come from nowhere. They actually come from our hearts is what this is teaching us. Meaning that if your words are bad in that moment, then our hearts must be bad. It's the direct link that he's trying to make. And it's actually supported by the gospel writers. Luke in chapter 6, verse 43 through 45, he says something similar. He says, out of an abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, the Bible, it actually has a lot to say about kind of the sad condition of our hearts as a result of sin. It says that our hearts are deceitful uh, above all things. Um, Our hearts are like idol factories, constantly worshiping things other than God. It says that, Jeremiah says that, you know, we always choose, we always lean towards choosing broken, dirty cisterns or wells when we could have the fount of living water. The Proverbs say that out of the heart, the mouth speaks, the tongue as James is trying to show us, is connected very directly and closely with our hearts. So here's, I think, what that means in real life. Uh, The harsh reality is that uh, your circumstances don't make you say mean things. Your heart does. Um, It's not my children agitating me that makes me respond in anger. It's not my friend uh, saying something that slights me that makes me say, a mean word. It's my heart that does. I've used this illustration before, but it's so helpful. Um, You know, pressure put on concrete, it doesn't create the cracks on the concrete. It exposes the flaws that were already there. Um, Your circumstances don't force your heart flaws. It exposes them, and then your words that come out are the visible result of what was in there the whole time. If you want to know what the state of your heart is, listen to yourself talk. Listen to what comes out. Listen and hear. What, what does it sound like? Does it sound like love and peace and joy? Or does it sound like anger and anxiety and bitterness and frustration or jealousy? See, James is getting real uncomfortably up into our stuff at this point because remember, I, I think you might have talked about it last week. He's getting into this idea of faith 
and you know, what we believe and then how it expresses itself in our, in our everyday life, in our deeds. Um, let me illustrate my failure in this. So in the mornings, um, I try to wake up before my kids get up. I have three young children. Um, I try to get up and read my Bible and spend some time in prayer before they get up. And I don't always you know, get out of bed before they do. Um, and so the reality is sometimes I got kids flying around and I'm trying to, trying to worship God. And, you know, I'm, I have a little rocking chair in the corner of my bedroom. And then we have our, our big kind of king size bed in our bedroom. And then my children's room is just on the other side there. And, you know, little boys, they see that big bed and they just instinctively, they just want to dive on it and they want to jump on it. And um, we've had so many conversations about why they're getting bigger. You guys can't do that. There's discipline now that comes with them getting on the bed. And yet sometimes their instinct just takes over and discipline and all, they just, they just dive on in, especially in the mornings. They're excited. They're well rested and they're just on the bed. Um, so here I am in my rocking chair, you know, worshiping God, uh, delighting in the Lord, feeling good about my faith. <laughs> and um, first kid rockets in right on the bed. Immediately, I'm irritated. I'm like, gosh, told them a million times not to jump on the bed. I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to keep worshiping God. Next kid, bigger kid comes in. Boom. Hear the bed creak. And all of a sudden, boys, get off the bed. How many times do I have to tell you? Get off the bed. And I'm like, man, it's 6.15 in the morning. Here I am, literally in God's word, with all the, all the power of the Spirit dwelling within me. And I can't even get my faith to travel from right here to right here. And man, what is that gonna mean for the rest of my day? Just to illustrate how strong and wild and untamable is the tongue. See, James is saying that our problem is that our hearts are sick with sin and they're directly connected with a tongue that is strong and wild and loose on our lives in this world. So I think you have two options. When you hear this, I think you might in our flesh think there's two options in terms of how I could respond to this. And they're both bad. They're both doomed options. But here's what I think they are. You might be listening to this and thinking, okay, I'm gonna try harder. I am gonna work really hard and I'm gonna carefully select my words. I'm gonna remember this passage throughout the day. I'm gonna force myself to change so that I don't wreck relationships with my words. And I think if James heard this, he would laugh at you or he'd say, you're just not listening to what I'm saying because what he's saying is you got no chance. Your tongue is too much to handle. <laughs> Your heart is too broken in sin to, for you just to be able to try harder and fix this problem. It's like, all right, well, if I can't fix it, then I give up. Like, why should I even try? You've just told me that this is impossible. If this is the reality, why on earth should I waste my time? If I can't tame it, maybe I should just get on with my life and let the words fall uh, how they may. So what hope does James give us? Well, I lied to you. I told you he throws a bunch of punches. Actually, James only throws two punches in this passage. The, the third thing that he actually throws our way is, he po- it's more of a finger, he points us in a certain direction. So he exposes the power of the tongue and the the sinfulness of our hearts, but then he points us to a perfect power. And here's what I mean by that. My wife, she lived in Thailand for some time before we got married, and she used to always tell me when we were dating about this dish called somtom, which is like a papaya salad, if you've ever had it. Um, And she just raved about how authentic and amazing it was. And so a few years later, 
uh, I had a chance to be in Thailand. I was there for work. Uh, I was not with Jamie, but in her honor, I was like, I'm going to seek out this dish that she loves so much, and I'm going to try it. So I asked a, um, a local and said, hey, can you show me where to find this somtom? And they took me to this food market. And tucked away in the corner, there was this little old lady with this wooden bowl. And you know, I went to order my papaya salad, and she said, well, how many peppers do you want uh, in it? And I asked the, the friend who was with me, I was like, how many do you usually get? And they're like, we only get like six, but we've grown up here. They're like, we would recommend getting zero. So I said, okay, I'll take zero of the red hot peppers. So the lady takes her bowl, she grinds up the papaya salad, serves it to me. It was uh, the hottest thing I've ever put in my mouth. I mean, with no peppers, must have been the residue from the bowl. It, I mean, I, I felt like I was hallucinating. I was sweating. It was so painful, but it was also one of the most delicious things I've ever had. I don't, it, it's something about the, the sun and the, maybe the smell of the diesel fuel that was going by and the fresh ingredients and the old lady and her bowl. Here, here's what I mean. I would wager a bet that it's the real deal, perfect Thai food that I haven't seen anywhere else. I, ha- I can't get it anywhere else except for in that place. This is a weak illustration at what I think James would have known and experienced to be the real deal, authentic, only perfect tongue to ever walk the face of the earth. He would have seen it. He would have encountered it. Because what the Bible tells us is that James would have been present when Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount. James would have been one of those who would have had to pick his jaw up off the floor, so blown away at the teaching and the words that Jesus would have spoke. But being his half-brother, he also would have grown up listening to Jesus. And he would have watched him time and time again know how to... uh, not just how to speak, but how to restrain himself and how to control his tongue, how to bless and how to bring justice. And James also would have known that not only was Jesus' words perfect, but his heart was uncontaminated. He would have known that Jesus' heart was gentle and lowly and full of mercy and full of grace and full of truth. And we know, and James knew, that it was actually because of Jesus' perfect words. It was because he was calling on people to turn from their sin and to trust in him. It was because of the things he said and did that led him to the cross. It led him to be put to death. And uh, incredibly, Jesus would be led to the cross without words. It says that he was silent, like a sheep led to the slaughter. And we know that the last words that rolled off that perfect human tongue is that it is finished. His perfect life was finished and his death on the cross in our place for our sin. He was perfect in our place. And now the power, what James is pointing us to is that there is power for those who believe this amazingly glorious gospel. That it's actually possible that when you trust in Christ, when, when you have faith in what he's done for you, not, not in what you can do, but when that great exchange has happened that we just sang about, when that, the records have swapped, then you can confidently, freely say, you know what, when it comes to my tongue, I can't, Lord, I can't, but you can. And being united to you, you can give me the power through your spirit to have hope in this area of my life. I don't have the power to speak perfectly. 
Um, but through the Holy Spirit dwelling within me, uh, God can work. You can work, Lord, in my heart to redeem my tongue. And God lovingly gives us his word and gives us his people to shape our speech to be more like Christ. And in doing this, James says, you will become whole. You will become more mature as people, and you must. Not only does God's grace uh, in our lives enable us to restrain and control our tongues from bringing destruction, what's equally amazing is that God then enables our tongues to be instruments of righteousness to do incredible things in the world. We, uh, as you come to Christ, there's a protective grace that he gives to, to guard our tongues from destroying, but then we get to speak the truth in love. We get to administer justice and love our neighbor and praise God and share the gospel and build up the church and bless the world with our words. It's incredible. So here's the, here's the summary. Don't, when, when we, and what James is showing us is that you, you can't just dig in and try harder, but you, you can't despair and give up. We must depend on Jesus. We don't just need the gospel to enter into a relationship with God, but we need the gospel every day, every hour, uh, every, in every area of our life, including how we think about our words. So James points us. He punches us, but then he points us uh, to Christ and to his redeeming love. Uh, in the first chapter, first few chapters of Les Mis, we're not just introduced to Jean Valjean, but we're introduced to um, a bishop. Uh, he's a Christian, and we get to learn a little bit about this man's life and his faith and his deeds in these early chapters. And uh, it's incredible to see how this bishop's faith led him to, to live and speak in ways that were radical and, and counter-culture. And there's just this one fateful evening where the convict... Jean Valjean is wandering around the village upon being released from prison, and he's just he's starving to death, and he's hurting, and he's wounded. And this bishop uh, takes him into his home and sets a table for him and you know, has hot soup made and uh, good wine put on the table with nice cutlery. And though all the town had rejected him, um, the bishop brings him in. And as they're at dinner, they're, they're speaking and they're talking, and the bishop... Um, he just calls him Monsieur or, or Sir. He, just, he starts calling him by a name that bestows dignity on this man when nobody else would, when everyone else uh, used words that uh, would be more fitting for a dog. And Victor Hugo writes that every time the bishop said Monsieur, the man's face would light up because Monsieur to a convict is a glass of water to a man dying of thirst at sea. If the tongue unchecked, can light a whole forest on fire for evil, then what James is saying and what Victor Hugo knew is that a tongue that's ready to love people can just with the slightest touch, the simplest word, lighten up the face, lighten the soul of a man, and even point people into an eternally different direction through Christ. So we know that we, we are convicts because of our sin, but Jesus would speak to us even this morning, bestowing grace and dignity and redemption and newness of life. Because if you know Christ, then God this morning is calling you more than Monsieur. He's calling you children who he loves dearly. So might we as a church be um, lit up afresh with the love of Christ this week? And might we depend on God uh, even with our words to light up a world that's lost in darkness as we 
go out to live and work and play this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we see Jesus on every page of Scripture. And I pray that as we talk amongst ourselves and even as we reflect quietly, I pray that we would be afraid of the scary reality of our tongues, that we would be sobered, and that we would even see different uh, crevices of how dark and corrupted our hearts have become by sin. But Lord, would we um, worship this morning to think that you would take our darkened hearts and our track records of filthy words and destruction and you would nail them to the cross and that you would pay for uh, our sins by your blood and that you would uh, swap places with us, as it were, that we might uh, be made new and that we might get years on this earth to, um, to use our words in ways that are honoring and glorifying to you. And so I pray that as we think about our families and our friends and our work, that, that our, our tongues would be instruments for, um, for your glory and that you teach us um, and train us and correct us uh, by your love and grace to, to live differently this week. And, and might the world be different as a result of it um, for our joy and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>